right now in 2016, in terms of largest in terms of largest GDPs in the world, uh, number one was China, number two was the U.S., number three was India, and then you had like Japan, Germany, Russia, Brazil, you know, et cetera, et cetera. By 2050, out of the top seven, six of them will be emerging markets. So China, India, then the U.S., and then Indonesia, Brazil, Russia, and Mexico. You just heard from Tuba D'Souza, a McMaster alumni who's done some really exciting work in the startup field. Tuba went from a life science degree to starting Hack the City, one of Hamilton's first startup accelerators. He then went on to the infamous Canadian startup program, Techstars and Next36, and finally ended up founding Crescendo, a startup that's focused on improving diversity and equity at big companies. Our Confo today covers the, his experiences in the startup world and his predictions for how innovation will shift to Asia in the upcoming years. You are now listening to the Next Iteration Podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you like the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. So on first glance, like when just like just take just diving into your profile, it looks like you're a kind of a pure-blooded entrepreneur. I don't know if that's by nature or by nurture, but other than the very unique nickname, Tuba, what sets you apart? Like, what about you is so uniquely you? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, I feel like I'll start off, like, with, with the pure-blood entrepreneur comment. That's, uh, I think it's funny. I I always say this, like, I, I got into entrepreneurship because I could never get an actual job. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> even in high school, like, my, my first business was, like, um, it was importing and selling like hats, watches, um, uh, just like general apparel in high school because like I would apply for summer jobs and like I wouldn't get accepted anywhere. Like like Wonderland, like the burger place, like no. I got rejected from Wonderland too. So yeah, I rejected from literally (laughs) everywhere. Like I I don't understand. Actually, at one point I went into like a Hero Burger, you know, like Hero Burger, like the the burger joint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I asked them, I was like, hey, like you know, for a job, like my resume, and they're like, oh, you know, uh, do you have a business degree? I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, we only hire people with a business degree. I was like. I'm sorry, what? Now I look back and I'm like, I don't know if they actually were. They were just like politely telling me to fuck off. Like, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> they were like, just don't come in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so that's what kind of pushed me to entrepreneurship. Was like, I was like, I need, I need money. Um, and so I also didn't have any money and I wanted to like dress cool. And so I would like, you know, find it. Was, this was like before like Alibaba was a thing or like when it was like, you know, mm. still on its emergence. Um, I would like find kind of like wholesalers in China uh, and then I'd order samples. Uh, of like different stuff and then so I would wear that and then end up you know someone was like oh this is a really cool watch where'd you get it I was like oh I, I can like sell it to you um and then that turned into <laughs> me like the selling, yeah selling watches to my friends and then I had like uh I had at, at the height of my entrepreneurship high school career I had two people that I would like basically wholesale product to in two different schools that would sell it to everyone there um, and that was my like first uh, first job. But, uh, oh, no, That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I had a whole yeah. operation going. So like, I, yeah, honestly. And then I got lazy, um, and I just like stopped paying attention to it. And then I got like a bad batch, and I sent them out. And then there was a new guy, and he was like, "Yo, these suck." I was like, "Shit!" So I gave him his money back. And then the other guy graduated, and I was like, "This is too much work." Um, and then I was like, "I need to, <laughs> I need to focus on school so I can get to university." So that was um, that's the origin story. Mm. Um, and in terms of what makes me unique, I don't like I don't really know. Um, I think it's like hard to answer that yourself. Um, but I feel like if you would ask my friends that, um, they'd probably say that I just I, I'm like a, I'm a doer. 
So like, if there's something that I'm really interested in, or if I'm like, oh, I want to do this thing, like I, I actually do it. Um, and it may be like unconventional, but I think that's like that's probably the thing that makes it unique. Is like if there's an idea that pops in my head, um, you know, and it's like there's enough motivation behind it, there's a good chance I'll I'll actually do it, or at least try to do it um, and fail and see see how it went. Have you always been a doer, or did you kind of build that up? Going, I think like I think when, when it comes to that, it, it was um, I think it was in stages, right? Like I, I think if I didn't, if that didn't happen in high school, I don't think I would have done as much um, because for me that was like, oh, I can like I can sell stuff, like I can do, I can make a business out of this, right? Like I can I can buy things, sell them, um, and you know I don't need to be like a you know business person to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even like I think I did a lot, like I learned a lot from my extracurriculars too, and so. Um, in high school, there was like so much stuff that I was like, oh, we don't have this, like, let's just start it. Um, or like, oh, no one's doing this, like, I'm just gonna do it. Um, and so I think it was like all these things that like build up to each other. And even like in university, right? Like I did like all extracurricular stuff in like first year, second year, third year. And like every year was something like bigger and bigger. Um, and then finally, I think at the end of it, like was Hack the City. And that was like a, it was a nonprofit, but it was like, a, it was like extracurriculars, but like very business focused. And so yeah, I think it was kind of something that was just like nurtured little by little over time to be like, yeah, you can take an idea and just like make it real. Do you, uh, I mean, I don't know, considering that kind of obsession with doing, like how often do you suffer from shiny object syndrome? Oh man, so much. I like, <laughs> even during COVID, I had like all these side projects and I was like, I need to stop doing all of these things on the side. Oh yeah. Um, with uh, How do you focus in? Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? Because so with... Um, with with crescendo, you know that was that was my baby at the time, and then I, I sold off. Uh, we sold the company, or sold the majority of the company um, earlier this year, and so uh, up until that point, it was kind of like everything, right? Because it's just you're you're so much of your energy is in it. Um, your net worth is entirely that. Like you know, it was it was my stake in crescendo, and so um, for that, it was like everything was around that. Like, can we start new things? Can we try new things? Can we try experiments? Um, but after that, is like when I had a lot of white space, and I was like, I don't know what to do with my life. Um, and then I just had like 18 projects up and going. And so, yeah, a lot of shiny object syndrome. My shiniest object right now is like starting a D2C company on the side. Um, it's like these, uh, we'll put the website soon, but they're basically these mimosa bombs. So um, it's like, a, imagine like a bath bomb, but way smaller and like all edible and like mimosa. And oh, so you, yeah. you drop, drop it in water. Into, you drop it no into sparkling wine and it turns it into oh, mimosa. Dude, that's like awesome. Green. Yeah, and like physics looks all cool. It's got like gold flakes in it. So, um, yeah, I got the prototypes out. We're putting the the Shopify website up, and then we're gonna, you know, do some basic ads, see if we can get the conversion, and if it works. Dude, out well, keep me posted. I'm a sucker for mimosas, so I will buy the shit out of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll let you know, man. But yeah, shiny object syndrome is is real, man. I've got like a list of uh, startup ideas, so I'll just like, if there's anything that like captures me, I'm like, I'll run with it. Um, but I, I think over time you learn to like vet the ideas as well. Like at one point earlier this year, like. Um, I like started making scented candles. Um, so I actually have a box of just like scented candles that I made like in my cupboard right now. Um, yeah. and I went through the whole process of like figuring out how to make them, experimenting, like, um, you know, finding, uh, different scents, uh, finding all the ingredients that were like close to me. I found, so I found this dude in Richmond Hill who like lives near my family who has this like tiny business he operates out of his home. And like, I'll text him like, yo, um, what's his name? Safe or something. I'm like, yo, safe. Like I need like, you know, 20 pounds of wax. Uh, and like uh, you know, two packs of Wix, and he's like, okay, man, meet me outside Starbucks, and like, <laughs> I'll go pick up pick up stuff from him. Um, but I think with that one, when I actually went around to that and being like, oh, let me see if I can sell these, I was like, oh, there's so much stuff about DTC. I like, I didn't know, right? Like, super competitive space, hard to differentiate your product, um, also heavy, and like shipping 
basically takes half of what you're actually selling it for. Right. And so over time, I've learned to like at least vet it, right? So on the D2C side, like, is it something visual that can be like visually sold? Um, or is it something easy to produce? Like, is it, you know, really uh, like boutique or, or can you actually get it produced? And the third one is like, wait, because like e-commerce is all shipping. And so like, can you hit on these two things and have it to be something lightweight? Um, so that when you are actually marketing it, the product can sell itself because it's visual. So you can sell it on Instagram. Um, it's lightweight, so you can ship it. Uh, and it's actually easy to produce or manufacture so you can actually scale up well. So over time you learn to like mm-hmm. whittle down the shininess of things and figure out like what is shiny, but like also a good idea. And oh, for sure. that, that system, I'm just curious, like more for my own interest as well, but do you how much of that knowledge do you keep tacit and how much are, do you make explicit do you write down and formalize into a system um when you say write down and formalize into a system is it like for myself or like for yourself yeah um i would say a lot of it is like in my head mm-hmm. um it really depends on what it is though, right because for me there's like different stages in which something needs to be written out um, because writing itself is a lot of energy and a lot of work too. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the first thing is like, if something is really interesting to me, I'll, I'll make a note on it. So if it's something I've read a podcast, it's something I talk to someone, I've got like a Google keep of like all these random notes all over it. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is if it's coming into practice and it's something that I want to disseminate, like not just to myself, but to other people, then I'll write it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that process of writing it out, it's, it's like, okay, this is something that's like useful for others too then I'll like write an actual article about it and put it somewhere. And so that's kind of the three stages of it. It's it's tough though, because writing does take a lot of time, at least for me. Um, and so it, there's a lot of the stage of like, I have all these other things to write. Like, why should I write this right now? So it's it's similar kind of shiny object syndrome and just that's figuring right. out what, what to write to. <laughs> oh yeah. So speaking of shiny object syndrome, I noticed something pretty shiny on your LinkedIn profile. And I wanted to ask, how you kind of transition from that world because it's not an easy feat. So for those of you who don't know who haven't read his LinkedIn profile, 99th percentile on the MCAT, but you became an entrepreneur. <laughs> so how how did you transition out of that state? Because I'm assuming it wasn't just you woke up one morning and you're like, I got a 99th percentile. Like you obviously studied for that and you worked towards that. So w- when did you switch over and when did you decide you wanted to to not pursue that? Or did you just do it to flex? I don't know. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I actually, actually totally forgot that was on there. I'm like looking at my profile now. I'm like, oh, wow, there's a lot of stuff here. Um, yeah, so going through university, I was, so I came into university and I thought I wanted to go into research. Um, and so I wanted to do research in like Alzheimer's dementia. Um, and so I was like, cool, I'll go to Mac because uh, they have a good science program. Um, I want to do something where I can work in a wet lab, um, you know, with, uh, with something on the neuro side. And so that was the initial path. Um, and then as I was going through it, I worked in a lab in my second, in my at the summer of my first year, I worked in a lab. Um, and I hated it. It was like awful. <laughs> um, no offense to anyone who loves working in labs. Like it just wasn't for me. It was just too, like, you know, your whole life is about this like one experiment and this like tiny thing that you're like, oh, I can't talk about this to anyone. So um, yeah, you guys both know. So that for me, it was like kind of be like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to go the, the route of do my master's or PhD to get into research. Like this kind of sucks. Um, so then I was like, well, I don't know, like, what else, what else can I do? And I was like, I guess I'll go to med school because, like, what else am I, like, I still want to work in this area, but, like, I, I don't want to research, so I guess I'll work on the patient side. And so that's where, like, med school came in. And then it was also aligned with, like, you know, pressure from family, right? Like, doctor, lawyer, engineer, like, classic, yes, you know, one of the three. Yeah, and so uh, I was like, okay, cool. Like, my parents were both like, yeah, yeah, go go be a doctor. Like, it's a great idea. 
Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, we fully support this. <laughs> oh, they're like, thank God. Um, uh, so, yeah, and then I went, and then uh, that's when I went into, like, biochem, um, because someone told me it would be good for prepping for the MCAT. Terrible advice. Never take a program <laughs> because of an MCAT. Uh, it was a good program anyways. Like, I learned a lot of stuff um, and met great people. But so that was the grind for the next little while. It was just, like, uh, you know, prep the MCAT, think about med school, like, how much to get in. That was like kind of my focus for a while. I think what shook me out of it was like I had biochem, but then I was also doing like all these extracurriculars on the side. And I just like really like extracurriculars because like I love planning events. Um, I loved, you know, running events, love meeting people, like all that kind of stuff. And, and I was really good at it too. So mm-hmm. I think that at that point too, I was um, VP Social of the Science Society. And so um, I had planned a whole bunch of events and reorganized our, our, our like big kind of gala social. Uh, and that one was like, at the time, was the biggest event I organized. It was like $30,000, $40,000 budget, 600 people, and we booked it at Leona Station, which is like an old train station converted into uh, an event. And we had like a live band came up from Toronto. Like, it was cool. But that was something that, that was the thing I was like, oh, I kind of like this, and it's not science, um, but it's something else. And then, you know, a year later, I, guess, I think it was a year later, yeah, is when I started Hack the City. You know, Hack the City itself was, what started off as like a case competition ended up turning into like a bit of a startup accelerator. Um, and in that process, I was like, wow, like, I love this. Like, um, I really love the business side of things. I'm good at it. Like, for Hacker City, we had to pull together a team. Like, we had to go out and raise money. And so the first year, we raised about, like, that one was 40000 the first year. And the second year, we raised, um, I think, just over $100,000. And so it, it was like, you know, that process of going out, like, forming these business relationships, like, bringing on these big VPs and execs, and, like, even myself having to get in to understand the startup world, like, you know, what is an MVP? How do I go from just an idea to, uh, you know, actually validating my idea and then teaching that to others through Hacker City was was really cool for me. And that whole process at the same time, I was like also doing MCAT stuff. And I was like, wow, this is way more fun. And so, <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, the 97 percentile too, like that came after the second one. The first one, like I bombed. It was like I spent the entire summer just studying. And I think I got like 63rd or 64th percentile. And I was like, wow, like this sucks. And so I had to do it again the next summer. Um, and it was the summer that I was planning Hacker City. Damn. And I was working as a bartender. Uh, and I honestly, the 99 percentile is still a shock to me. Like, I don't know how the hell I got that. Um, I, I think I just got lucky. Like, I, the questions were good. Um, but uh, that's what kind of got me out of it. And then I was like, I don't think I want to do medical school. I want to do this this business thing that I'm, like, good at and I like. And my parents saw everything that I was doing, too. And they were like, wow, like, this is, you know, really impressive. My dad was an entrepreneur. Like, he started his own company. And so he saw that. And he was like, you know, I, I support you if you want to go this route, too. Yeah. That's really good, and that's I think that's so rare, like amongst like, oh yeah, immigrant families, like to to have that level of support. Do you think that was pretty essential in like helping you kind of understand that that was your path? Yeah, I think so. I think like, I think I think a lot of it too is because of uh, like my dad. Like both my parents came from India, right? So they went from India to Australia and then came to Canada. And it's like classic story of like not having any money, not having a job, and just having to figure things out when they get here. My mom was always able to find a job because my mom, like, like my mom's a bit like lighter skin. She's like Catholic from like a certain region in Goa, and so she's very like kind of white passing, and so she, she was able to find jobs really easily. My dad, on the other hand, you know, is a lot darker skin. Uh, he had an accent, uh, like you know, thick mustache, classic brown uncle, um, and like he, he could never get a job. And so he was always the entrepreneur where he would just figure out how to do things. Um, and I think that, like, at least for me to kind of show me it was like possible because I grew up like that. Um, but I think it was huge when it came to me actually making the decision of like, I don't think I'm actually going to go through with medical school. Like I want to pursue this. Uh, and then being like, you know what? Yeah. Like you're talented at this, like you've done it. 
um, we know you can make a career out of this, like go forward and we'll support you. And that was uh, definitely huge. Like it's, it's really tough, right? Like taking all those steps and like, even how to explain to like family and stuff that you're like not working oh, yeah. somewhere after you graduate. Like that's, uh, it's that's tough. yeah, it's key. For that's sure. so crazy though, how your story so closely kind of mimics your dad's in that mm-hmm. sense, you know? Um, and I'm just, just to dive into that whole hack the city experience a little more considering that, you know, this was still very early in your life and career. And I guess you kind of touched on this question a bit already, but what did you learn about yourself through that experience? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll generally explain hack the city because I think that it adds context to anyone who doesn't know what it is. Hack the city was, uh, and I think the evolution of it also kind of ties into what I like, what I was learning for myself. So at the beginning, um, I was really frustrated because you now I was in this biochemistry program, and I'm like, I don't like biochemistry. Like, what, what am I supposed to do with my this like fancy degree I've got? Right? Like, I, I I don't know anything else outside of my industry. And at the same time, through like extracurriculars, I had started getting involved with like the city of Hamilton, and I was like, oh, there's like really interesting things that are happening in the city in a bunch of different industries, and I'm slowly learning about them through my extracurriculars, but there's nothing in school that like tied to it, right? Like everything in science was about like science. Everything biochem was about like all the research that like the researchers at Mac are doing. And so um, that was really frustrating for me. And I knew that a whole bunch of my other friends felt the exact same way. Like in science, it's just like, there's no, you don't really get an exposure to anything else. Um, And so that's where I was like, oh, what if we had like a case competition where you could have people from all these programs, like, you know, science, economics, like social science, humanities, whatever, um, who don't get exposed to like actual things happening in the world and, um, you know, have them form teams and work on like actual real life problems. And so that was what Hack the City was. It was supposed to be like a weekend case competition, but it ended up like the more people I talked to, um, I think the more people I realized like really felt that problem of like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with my degree. And, you know, there are people my age who were feeling that problem, but there was also a lot of alumni that I had met who were working in like totally different industries who were like, yeah, like I had no idea what I could do with my degree. And so it slowly became like, as I talked to more alumni, they connected me with other people. Um, that idea just kind of snowballed into becoming like this like months, couple months long, you know, process um, in that first year. And so that uh, I think taught, well, it, it showed me that like, there's a lot of people out there who like aren't really sure what's going on. And like that, that feeling of like, I don't know what I want to do doesn't end after you graduate. You just get more exposure and you mm-hmm. figure out more of what you like. But that was number one. I think the second thing was just like the power of like talking to people about something. I like, it, it was weird when I look at like how I made all the connections that I did in Hackett City in the first year, going from like, you know, being this like fourth year student um, who's in biochem to like bringing in, you know, the the Canadian lead for like IBM or like one of the like uh, SUPs at Siemens, um, to, like do this random case competition. Um, it was all through like first and second connection. So my first connections were like people that I've, I knew at Mac or who had like recently graduated. Um, and when I talked to them uh, about this, they were connecting with other people. And so that level of connection just like started to grow. And then like, next thing I know, like I was talking to the city manager, like one-on-one in his office of Hamilton, who's now the city manager of Toronto about like, you know, this thing I wanted to do. Um, and it just kind of, it just kept snowballing like that. And network so, effects. yeah, it was network back. And it was just like, for me, it was just like, I learned a lot of like, wow, um, just because someone seems really far away or like you think you have no network because you're a student, like that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to know how to connect with your network and like find something you're passionate about and be able to connect with people who are also passionate about that. Um, and then just like ask them if they know anyone else who'd be interested in talking. And so th- those I think were 
the two things of like, there's so much more I'm interested in here. I actually have a network that's really powerful. I have a, I have like a reputation because these people who were like had recently graduated knew me from extracurricular stuff. So they like knew that I was serious about doing things and I could like execute. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think those were the two main things. And the third one was just like, as I was going through it, like, I just learned that I love those challenges of like dealing with people, like having a vision and trying to communicate that, um, you know, raising money, uh, like figuring out a budget, like turning that into like an actual program, um, building a team, like these are all things that I loved. And so that I think was the final switch for me for like, this is a startup, like this is a very small nonprofit, but it's a startup. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I love this and I want to do it on a, on a bigger scale. And what was the, okay, I don't want to just focus on the bad, but what was the best and the worst part of that experience? Oh my God. Okay. Best was like, it was cool being able to put this thing into like reality. And that, that first year got a lot of traction too. Um, we, we had like a kick-ass team and we got to do stuff that like, at least at the university level, I was like, oh, this is so cool. Right. Like we got to print this gigantic banner and like hang it off of like university oh, power. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, no one, no one gets to do that. Right. And it was like, <laughs> I only got to do that because like, um, because I had, I knew the health and safety guy at Mac because I had like, you know, done a whole bunch of other events and like, he knew me personally. And I was like, yo, Chris Hurley, like, I want to do this thing. And he's like, Hmm. And then I had also got like Patrick <laughs> Dean on board as like a sponsor. And I'm like, Patrick said, it's cool. He connected me with this other guy and he's like, all right, like everyone says this is cool. Let's do it. So, um, that yeah, was probably go. the coolest thing was just like, that's crazy. Uh, good, yeah. Good to do all this shit that like, I didn't think was possible. Uh, the worst part was just like. How oh man, I learned so much because we just made so many mistakes, right? Like sure. there's so many things that I learned in that first year of, of Hack the City, just about managing like external stakeholders that like I carry with me today. Um, like I mean, example, I can't name names on this, but like there was one executive that we brought in who was like a super senior executive. And like I thought they were like, you know, sponsoring this program and like being a part of it because they like, you know, cared about the kids and like want to help the students. Um You're and uh them. yeah. <laughs> and like I, I was totally wrong right like I, and I didn't realize this until later on where they were like really upset and they were like oh look we wanted to do this 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 and I was like holy shit like they didn't do this because they cared about like what we're trying to do they did this because they wanted FaceTime with the city manager of Hamilton because um, if they can get Hamilton the city as an account for like what they're doing um, like that would be huge for them so this is a networking opportunity for them and there were mistakes like that that I just like didn't know about working with people and like mm-hmm. understanding people's motivations um, that just created like a ton of stress, but also a ton of learning. So for sure, yeah, that was definitely, it was very stressful. <laughs> it, was not, it was not an easy, fun experience. <laughs> oh yeah. So many insights from that, but two I want to center on. Ask for forgiveness, not for permission, man. Like just do it, figure it out. You get in trouble, you get in trouble. But dude, that's like, that sounds so cool. Uh, second thing, the Kevin Bacon number thing, because like everyone is so close to everyone else. Like you know, once you break past that, like, initial barrier of, like, that first degree of separation, you get to that second degree of separation, like, I guarantee all of us are, like, at least second year connected to Drake, like, all of us, right? Cause just being from <laughs> Toronto. And it's, like, yeah. I think it's really freeing once you realize that you're able to tap into those outer layers because you just meet so many cool people. Um, anyways. Yeah, um, just to add to that quick, too, because, like, I think this is something really valuable to understand as a student is that people love helping students out. Like people yeah. love paying it back and paying it forward, right? And especially because like one, people like feeling needed, you know, feeling valuable to other people. But the other thing is that for a lot of people, you know, the only reason they've gone 
where to where they are is because of you know other mentors, other resources, and people in their life who have gone out on a limb to help them out. You know, so I think it's up to us now too, as that kind of like that next generation that has leveraged that ability to be a student uh, to pay it forward, and you know, a bit through I guess like all of us being here today on this podcast to disseminate some of that knowledge a bit yeah. of a grandiose way. Yeah. The, the, the other thing too that I thought, and there's a last point I'll do on this is like. Um, one of the things I learned was the power of other people's word on creating a reputation for you. And so, um, you know, I think one of the challenges is like, I, I was like a student, right? Like I didn't, I didn't know any of these people. Like I wasn't an actual, I don't know, <laughs> adult. Like I was just doing things. I was just figuring things out. And so I remember like um, one of the alumni that I had talked to, uh, his name is Sefa, he worked for the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and he was like, oh, yo, there's this uh, breakfast with like the city manager um, that like is a business thing that like all these business people get invited to. Uh, and he's like, we need, I'm looking for a seat filler. So these are like, there's empty seats and they just want to get people to fill the seats so the room looks full. There's like four or five of those. Um, and so he's like, do you want to go? I was like, hell yeah. Um, and so I went and I was a seat filler on this thing. And um, and uh, the city manager was talking and I had like met him very, very briefly through a class like I took the previous year at Mac. Um, but anyways, I saw him afterwards, and I, I basically went and I just pitched him this idea of Hack the City. Um, and he was like, he's like, okay, like, you know, this sounds, like, interesting. He's like, um, you know, why don't we, we'll meet up, like, email this person. Um, you know, we'll meet up here. You bring your people. I'll bring my people. Uh, and we'll talk about details. And I'm like, cool, cool, cool. And then I'm like, fuck, I have no people. Like, you what, have, what you know, <laughs> back then? I know. And I was like, I was throwing, I was throwing all these names, right? Because I was like, trying to get him interested. And I was like, oh, man. And then, so that's when I went back to my network, like all those, all those people who, who were like alumni that I talked to who had like a little bit of reputation in the city, I had them all come to this. Mm-hmm. And so we went to like get a beer and meet the city manager and it was, ended up just being him, but it was me. I brought like that guy, Josefa, I brought another guy, Corey, I brought another guy who's doing something else, like Dave, brought this other girl, Alyssa, um, who were all like recent alumni, but who were all like kind of rising stars in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was telling, I was like pitching this thing to the city manager and he was like, yeah, yeah, but like, you know, we don't fund one-offs. Um, and then everyone else is able to chime in with like, oh, no, this actually connects to this bigger initiative that we're doing, or this connects to this large initiative that, like, this organization in, in the city is doing. And then he was like, after that, he was, like, sold. Um, but with that, it was, like, a big lesson, right? Because I'm like, I went from having no reputation to all of these people who have some reputation vouching for me, which made me, um, you know, have more legitimacy in his eyes. And that's that was true throughout, like, the rest of my career when it came to startups raising money, like who is on your board, who has given you money so far, who is on your team, what customers do you have? Like all of these things lend you reputation when you don't have any. Um, and so that was a really important lesson to learn that I think just like carried with me throughout it. Reputation by association. And I hear it like on Twitter as like the FOMO culture of VCs. Like VCs are just FOMO machines. Like if everyone else is investing in you, you're going to get investments, you know? But um, anyways, before we move on to like more sort of your time on uh, Techstars and Next36, I want to ask one more thing about your time at McMaster because I saw that you work for the MSU. And yeah. dude, I just want to say, like, I remember 17, 2017, 2018, because I started at Mac in 2016. I was flexing on my friends from Western because I was like, dude, we had Lil Yachty, we got Post Malone. Like, we have all these like A-list celebrities coming to our concerts. And Western had that one year with Uzi and Juice Roll, which I went to, and that was insane. Absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. But other than that. Mm-hmm you know, Mac was king of, of uh, Canadian university concerts. So I want to ask, how'd you do it, man? Like as someone from the inside perspective, like how'd you get all those big names? Yeah, that was like, that was uh, the, we just had a really good campus events department. So 
Um, and it all goes back to uh, this guy, Al Lingo. So he was a director of campus events at Mac for like years. Um, now he's at Google and he runs all of their corporate events. Um, Dude, but like, what? That's insane. <laughs> it was honestly, it was like a weirdest, like weirdest job. He went from he went from campus events at Mac um, to leading corporate events for Microsoft to then leading corporate events for Google. Dude, what? Um, yeah, what was his name again? Here or something? Al Lego, A L, and then like last name is Al uh, L E G A U L T. I think. Oh man, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta look through my things. I gotta mess with him. <laughs> Um, no worries. Yeah, but, we'll, uh, we'll link it in the in the show notes. But yeah, yeah, yeah. see if we can find. Uh, yeah. Anyways, Al is like Al's crazy man. This dude. So he's like a he's he was like he worked for campus events and like in university campus stuff for like a long time. But he was just like a straight like like he was his own entrepreneur like inside the MSU. So what he did was like he wanted to get um, he wanted to get bigger acts for like welcome week and stuff. And so he worked with like the MSU leaders at that time to uh, basically like. You know, do a huge campaign, get everyone to show up to like a general uh, assembly, wherever you can vote on your things, and they pass an initiative that created the Welcome Week student levy, which basically, when you're doing Welcome Week, you pay like a two hundred dollar fee, um, and that went to create an entirely new budget for campus events to be able to book A-list artists. So that was the first thing that let them go from like C-ranked artists to B-ranked artists. The next thing is this guy, like he went and he. Um, he, he, like, had contacts with all the other campus events, uh, like, you know, Western or whatever. Um, and so what he did was he started basically get, getting everyone, like, to organize together. And so he, like, started this concept called block booking, where uh, the campus events team at McMaster, the campus events team at Western, and the campus events team at Laurier would actually pool their money together um, and bring in, in – and, and because they were doing that, they were able to bring in an A-list artist. Um, and it wouldn't just be a one, one-stop one show. It would be, like, they go do Welcome Week at Mac, and then they do some other event at Western. They do some other event at Laurier. Mm-hmm. And so it ended up being, like, lower um, overall to do three shows. Um, but it was better for Costco, artists. Costco, but for, for artists. <laughs> exactly. And so he did that. And, like, he that was when we started getting, like, really big artists to come in. And then from there, it just kind of snowballed. Like, the next campus best director brought in. Her name's Trish. She used to run events for um, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment. Um, oh and then she, yeah, and they brought her in for the MSU. That was, a, that was the year I was starting. Uh, we had just brought her in. And then so she was the one. Uh, we worked with her to bring in Hassan Minaj, um, uh, Post Malone, and then everyone who kind of came after that. So that's awesome. it was, uh, yeah, pretty nuts, man. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so crazy getting the other side of it because, like, some of my best memories at Max. So I repped the year. Lil Yachty did his concert. I repped the year. Post Malone did his concert. And, like, some of my best memories at Mac. We're at those concerts and at those events. Hassan Minaj, like, I love that guy. So, yeah, cool. yeah. super cool getting the inside perspective. Yeah. Cool. So just fast-forwarding a bit through your life now. So, you know, you, you've done the, the undergrad thing. You learned a little bit more about yourself. And all of a sudden, you end up in Next36 and uh, Techstars. Oh, you found him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we call him Al, but his actual name is Alan. Yeah. Um, if, yeah, he used to never go by Alan, but now I guess he's, you know, full corporate. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, legend tells maybe one day you'll ditch the two, but two, who knows? <laughs> Anyways, so you end up at Next36 and Techstars, and, you know, there is a lot of prestige that gets associated with kind of making the rosters for these programs. Does the value add live up to the hype in your experience? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I would think so. So there's, there's two part phases, right? Like there's Next36 and there's Techstars, and they're in very different leagues. So mm-hmm. um, Next36 is... A really, really solid starting point um, for getting introduced to the Canadian ecosystem um, and starting to build a Canadian network or a network of like Canadian or like Canadian entrepreneurs. Um, so for me, like you know, I, I was working at the MSU full time, like right after I graduated, um, and I knew I wanted to. Do, I knew I wanted to start a company. I just didn't know 
when. Um, and the problem was like, I didn't have a network or, you know, I didn't have a startup network or a network that was really attuned to startups. Um, and I also didn't have like a startup reputation. And so I was like, okay, it's two paths for me. Either one, like, you know, I go and work at a tech company and I start building like relationships with really solid developers um, and other people because I didn't really know that many developers or like really solid developers and, and Hamilton didn't really have a, like a mature startup ecosystem. And so that was like, okay, that's one route. Um, or the other route is, um, you know, I do like some sort of accelerator or something um, that is able to help me bridge that gap and, and find people. And so um, that's where Next36 came in. And so um, I got to the Next36 um, and it was really cool because the interview was, uh, they shortlist all the applicants, like a hundred people. Um, and you know, they bring you down to Toronto. So if you're like, you know, the parts will fly you down or like we just bust down cause we were like in Hamilton or me. Um, and then, uh, in that interview process, it was a hundred shortlisted people who were all around my age, like 20, 22 to like 27 ish. Um, and all from like different schools, different backgrounds, like different expertise, and it was really cool because, like, that was the first time for me, um, you know, I it was like a, it was like all these people who were just like brilliant or serious about starting a company and had very different backgrounds. Um, and so that's where I had met, uh, that's where I actually met both my co-founders for Crescendo, Sage and, Sage and Stefan, uh, was I met them through that, uh, when they were shortlisted. So we all met kind of in that interview process. Um, and all three of us had the same challenges around, like, we want to start a company. We want to find other people who are serious about this. Um, but, you know, we're isolated in our own networks. And so Stefan, um, you know, he worked at my startups, but he was in the, the sales and marketing side. Um, so he was at Microsoft on the tech side. And then I was, you know, at Mac. And so that's where the three of us kind of came together. And so um, Next36 was great because it was like one was an intro to that network. Um, it was also an intro to other, um, you know, uh, Canadian entrepreneurs. And so they had brought in a whole bunch of people who were mentors, instructors, who had like launched and scale companies um, in different areas. And so, you know, these might have been Canadian entrepreneurs, these might have been entrepreneurs who, um, you know, had like launched a company in the States, like whatever it might have been. But that level of exposure to like actual entrepreneurs who had like launched and raised money and like scaled the company and not like, you know, grown a team was also very new to me. And then the third thing was also the educational component of it. So that's where the next vertex was really good was it was almost like a mini MBA where they would bring in, you know, uh, professors from like Harvard or MIT um, to teach a specific concept. So we had a you know a professor from uh, Harvard Business School who focuses specifically on venture, uh, talk to us about raising money, uh, understanding term sheets, negotiating term sheets. They had someone come uh, who was an MIT researcher at blockchain, um, you know, uh, or at MIT on blockchain, um, you know, give us a lowdown of like where blockchain is, uh, was it 2019? So in 2019. Wait, was this um, Gary Gensler? I honestly, I don't remember. It was okay, so long okay. ago. I'm a huge yeah, fan yeah, of yeah. that. Yeah. He's a prophet <laughs> at MIT. Teaches blockchain. Yeah. But this is, uh, but this is like, these are the type of people that they would bring in. And um, it was just, it was like really condensed, like how to start a company basically. Um, and so that was the first bit. And then Techstars was on a different level, right? Because Techstars uh, was when you already have a company and mm-hmm. you're looking to grow it quickly. Um, and so, you know, when we went from, and, and ours was rare, like we went from Next36 right to Techstars, like we were super early. Like we had just gotten our first customers, like we barely even had a product. Um, and when we got into Techstars, we were the earliest company there. Like other companies, you know, like one of them, uh, there was companies from all over the world. So they're from, from the UK, from like the States, from Chile, from like France, uh, from Israel. And like all of them already had, you know, a, a bunch of revenue and like at very different stages. And so um, it was a very different how to start a startup, but it was like how to scale. Um, and the biggest thing with Techstars was just the network, right? Because it was a global network. So 
when we had mentors, like they would be from different parts of the world. Like um, I was able to meet the CEO, the, the one of the founders of Techstars, uh, who uh, I told was I, I was speaking at a conference next year in India, and he was like, oh, we're starting a Techstars program in India. Like um, if you're going, shoot me an email and I'll connect you with like the managing director for that program. Um, and so that, you know, led to like my India journey and like I have like a network there now and I have like Techstars, there's Techstars programs all over the world. And so um, that, that, that network was a totally different scale um, and focus than the one at Next was, but um, both of them, I think, were just like really critical, at least in my own journey, uh, of getting me connected and exposing me to like what's going on in the world. Do you think these like accelerator, like incubator type programs, like we have on deck? There's like YC, obviously. Like there's so many out there. Do you think number one, are they worth sort of like the hype and the money involved? And number two. How do you feel like about what they do for accessibility topic? Do you think they're overall positive force for accessibility? Or do you think they kind of like limit it in the sense that like they're super selective and some of them are really expensive, right? So you have to be like, you know, of a certain class, right? So it's like they kind of limit naturally the number of people and they all kind of share connections with themselves. Like, but on the other hand, you know, anyone can apply. Anyone can apply to YC. And so it does increase accessibility in some sense. So like, what do you think is the trade-off there? And like do you think overall they're they're a good value add to society? So I'll, I'll start like I, I think in terms of value, um, I think they're a really helpful network booster. And I think so much of a starting a company, getting off the ground is network, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to raising money, right? Like it goes back to who are you, what is your reputation, and like who is lending you the reputation um, right. for you to go and say, I have this idea that has some traction, like believe in us, right? And like invest in, invest in this company. And so um, I, I, all of them are amazing network boosters. Techstar is a great network booster. On Deck, great network booster. Um, you know, Y Combinator, great network booster. Even like, like uh, there's different stages of network boosters, right? There's like YC, Techstars um, that are like that level of your scaling a company. And then there's earlier, right? Like Next36, another one's Entrepreneur First. Like there's these ones who they focus on like connecting you with other founders. Um, but again, it's, just, it's part of growing your network. And so I think that they're really valuable if you need the network boosted. Like, there's a lot of people who I know who don't need their network boosted, and if they go to, you know, a tech charge by combinator, it's not going to provide any value for them. Um, there's also the other aspect of it's very distracting. Like, when you're going through these programs, your entire world becomes this program, and, you know, it's like, oh, it's all about the demo day. In three months, we have to go pitch to all these people, and we raise a bunch of money, and that's just how the story goes. But, like, that's, that's not really running a company. It's just kind of like a hype accelerator, and so... It's, it's, there's also that other aspect of it. It's actually distracting and some, in some cases can be harm, more harmful to your company. Um, and then in terms of accessibility, like, yeah, anyone can apply, but like, honestly, all of these are like, your network helps you get into all of these. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. us getting into Techstars was just like a really random series of events that really helped our application like stand out from everyone else's. It was Stefan had previously worked at a company that was in Techstars. He went to Techstars demo day in like Boston. Um, uh, just to, like meet other people, he like the managing director from Texas Boston like introduced him to the managing director of Texas Montreal, um, and then you know when we applied, we like emailed him like, hey, we're applying, and so you know all of these things like just help your application. It's like when you're applying to a job and you can intro to someone at the company. Yeah. It's the exact same thing to applying at Accelerator, right? Like, um, so I mean, accessibility is there, but um, I think you know the, the reality is is that a lot of people who do get into to, to accelerators do have some sort of help from their network. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of dive into that a bit more, so I think a lot of the people that are listening are good at building a network, but they kind of struggle with nurturing that network, right? Like you make that initial connection with someone, you might send them a quick message like, hey, how's it going, blah, blah, blah. 
But then, you know, after that initial conversation, it's just kind of dead in the water. It's no follow-up. What kind of, in your experience, like what kind of advice would you have for those people in keeping those relationships warm? Um, That's a good good question. So I'd say like, it depends on what what stage you're at, right? Like, um, so I actually picked this up from my my old co-founder, Stefan, because he was like, he's the most brilliant he's like a, there's certain people who are connectors. Like they just know so many people. Um, and they're able to like, their superpowers connecting you with someone. And like, that's how they provide value. And, um, I, I remember I was asking him, I was like, how do you, how do you keep track of all these people? Like, how do you keep in touch with them? Um, and like for him, it was like LinkedIn. Like, um, he would constantly be on LinkedIn. He would like people's posts, comment on them, share stuff with people he thought was relevant. Like, these are all the things that he would do. And it's a small thing, but it keeps you, like, top of mind that you're not just, like, gone in the wind, right? And so, you know, one of the things that, and this is, like, something that I try to do, honestly, I struggle with. I think his mind just, like, works in a very people-focused fashion. But when you talk to someone, like, he would also figure out, like, what are they personally interested in? Like, what do they really care about? And then anytime he, come across, he comes across an article or something in that realm, he would send it over and be like, hey, I was just reading this. I thought of you. Um, I don't, you might find it interesting. Here you go. Um, and it's just a really small way of like providing value to someone. Mm-hmm. They may have already read it. They may not care, like whatever it is, but like the fact that you're doing that is like a way of providing value to them. And so he would do that in combination with all the LinkedIn stuff, just like liking, commenting on people's posts, like whatever it is. Um, and that was his way of just keeping everyone really warm. Um, and so I'm trying to do the same thing now and it's, it's tough, right? Because like you have other things to do and it's really hard to remember all these people, but I think the more you can do that, the more you can kind of um, keep people warm uh, and provide value to them, uh, the more you can kind of keep in touch and I think keep that network and keep that relationship over time. Yeah, that's really good advice. Thank you for asking that, Damien, by the way, because that, that's something I struggle with a lot. And I've been trying to, I don't know, figure out how I can get better at maintaining relationships. I feel like it's not even just like professional connections, like personal relationships, like m- my family, like my mom, my dad, like I'm kind of bad at like maintaining that. But I think one thing that I like from what you mentioned is that idea of always adding value. Like, it's not about just like making contact, but like, Hey, you know, like maybe we don't have to have a whole conversation, but I remember this thing about you that shows that I care. Like whether it's like, I remember in your conversation, you mentioned that you were interested in emerging markets and I came across this article and I send it to you and and like, you read it, you don't, we have a conversation, we don't, but you know that I'm thinking about, you know, I value that. So I get to, yeah, definitely going to take that away from that. Yeah. I think especially around, um, look at people's side, right? Like if you can remember something personal about someone um, and you can bring that up like in a positive way to like provide value later on, like um, that just makes, it goes above and beyond, right? So if you remember like someone's talking to you and you remember their kid's name um, and the next time you, you see them, you're like, oh, how is your kid's name? Um, and like that, that just all of a sudden separates you from everyone. And it, it makes you go from business connection to like sort of a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the other thing that's like, I think really, important to remember too is that like people are people and so the more you connect with them as a person the better yeah it's it's so cool it's such an easy thing to do right it costs you absolutely nothing to spread some love and you know it makes you a more charismatic person at the end of the day too right people are drawn to that and you know charisma is just projecting love and confidence at the same time you know like look at this look at the font smiling right now look at that smile i was gonna say how are the kids david let's uh fast forward again a bit into crescendo because i really want to dive into some of your thoughts around some of the macro lab content you've been putting out because i'm Mm. super interested in that but i mean i suppose the idea was first born at um uh, at techstars when you met your co-founders but where was crescendo first like brought into this world yeah so 
so Crescendo was actually born at the next 36 when I first met my two co-founders. Um, and that's when we, at least the idea of Crescendo was born. So it started off as something, it was in the same industry. So all of us like knew we wanted to do something about, um, you know, building better workplaces. We all had other personal experiences or had like friends with personal experiences that were related to it. And at the same time, um, the Me Too movement was uh, really kind of gaining a lot of momentum. And so it was something that all of us were kind of were, were passionate about. Um, and it was something that we knew was getting a lot of attention. And so there was momentum for it. And so that's where we started was just like, we all care about this one thing. Um, you know, this is where we'll, we'll start a company and let's let's explore in here and see what we can do. Um, I'll say too that like we were all passionate about other things too, but this was the one thing that all of us had in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we that's why we really decided on it. Um, and, and the momentum. And so that was a key factor in it. Um, cause I think a lot of people, you know, they're like, Oh, if I don't hundred percent, you know, if I'm not all in on something then I shouldn't do it. And I think that's bull- bullshit. Um, the other part was like, you know, we learned a lot in that first phase of figuring out what we were actually doing with Crescendo. Um, it started off with us sitting on our table being like, Oh, we think that an anonymous reporting software would help. Like big companies have this, like small and medium companies don't. If we build something that can make that easier, um, then, you know, this will help build better workplaces. Um, and for the first, like, you know, three, four months, we were flushing out this idea, like, we we're going to build it, and we're like, oh, let's, like, go talk to people and, like, test out these assumptions. And it turns out that, like, um, this, it, like, wasn't a good idea because by the time someone reports something, it's already kind of too late. Um, and um, when we actually got the critical question, we were talking to people about this, and we'd be like, would, would you buy this? Like, how much would you pay for this? People actually, like, business leaders, like, didn't actually want to buy it because um, they were like, I find it hard to pay a lot for something if I don't know that people will actually use it. Mm-hmm. And this was the thing that was like, oh, like, if, if a lot of people are using it, like, something's really fucking wrong. Um, but, you know, mostly, like, only a few people will use it. So it was a really, like, kind of weird... Yeah, you want your thing. market to be small. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then we were like, oh, man, like, okay, one, this isn't actually solving the problem we were thinking of. And two, like, this isn't actually... We don't actually think that people will, will buy this. Um, and so let's kind of go back to the drawing board within this space and see what we come up with. Um, and that's where we switched from trying to come up with an idea and pitch the idea to just doing discovery. So, you know, over a period of time, we talked to like, fuck, it was like 200, 300 people. Like, it was like, you know, people who had like left companies, like HR people, DNI people, like company execs, anyone that we could reach out to to understand like what was the core problem around like company cultures going bad. Um, and was there an opportunity within there that we can make some part of that, you know, either uh, go away or, you know, easier or whatever it might be. Um, and that's really where we came to what Crescendo is now, which is, um, you know, a really easy, low effort way to learn about diversity and inclusion um, that, like, you know, is integrated into Slack or Microsoft Teams or wherever employees are. And so that's what it ended up becoming. Um, but it was a really long journey to get there. Um, but then once we actually got there, that's when we actually started getting some traction of getting our first customers or finding the product more, et cetera, et cetera, until we had gone from, you know, $0 to over a million dollars in revenue. Okay. Bouncing back on that. Um, I'm like pretty interested in like the DNI space and, you know, I feel like trainings and all those, like, I think there's some somewhat of like a, I don't know. I don't know how to word it, but like somewhat of an apprehension in, in terms of like an employee. Like I've done so many onboarding, yeah, and so yeah, many yeah. trainings, and people are like, "Dude, like no one listens to those." You put that in the background. Dude, suck. Like, like I'm, I'm really cool. I'm, I'm like that's for us. That was like, how do be like these suck? Like we all did them, right? Like I like did so many at Mac. I was like, oh, these are like awful. Yeah. Um, and that was actually the problem we found was that like 
all these companies do these trainings, but they suck, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. like if someone does go, um, they usually forget almost everything they learned like right after. Um, and so it was like, how do we help people learn um, in a way that's actually like natural and interesting to them? And that's when we found from our research, like we had found these people who went from like not caring about diversity inclusion to becoming like super champions. Mm-hmm. And there was like three or four of them. And we're like, this is like interesting. Like how did, how, how, why? Like, how did you become this champion? Um, and we found that all of them like learned in the same way. It was that um, there were some triggers. So something made them be like, oh, this is important. So either they went through something or they're like a close friend or a loved one went through something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for someone, it was like, you know, my wife uh, or my partner or my girlfriend or whatever, um, you know, getting all, started getting all this discrimination at work. And for me, like that made me realize that this is important. And so there's some trigger that makes someone want to learn. And it's so usually a friend touch. or someone. Yeah. Yeah. Personal yeah. touch. The next thing is that um, because they want to learn, they're like more um, open to receiving information. And so they are looking at stuff and it's usually content online, right? It's like on Facebook, on like Twitter, like on YouTube, like whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And mostly will gravitate towards stories. So it'll be stories of people sharing their experiences. Then after that, they find a topic that they're interested in um, and then they start actively learning. So they actually search out for more creators or more content related to that. And then when they get to a point where they feel comfortable enough, they start um, engaging. And so they comment, they uh, interact with others. They, there's like sort of a community aspect around it. And for us, we were like, you know, that that first part of the process is actually really difficult, finding good content um, that's like interesting to what you're interested in. So rather than just randomly, you randomly stumbling upon this on like Facebook or YouTube, can we like automate that and bring that into the workplace? Mm-hmm. And so that's really what Crescendo was. It was this like, at the beginning at least, it was like a Slack bot that would straight up just send people like YouTube videos and like interesting articles. Um, and then over time it became more and more personalized, like more algorithm generated mm-hmm. where as an individual, you do a quick onboarding. It's like, if you want to do this, like it's optional, you can do this. Uh, and we found that most people actually did because it just like diversity inclusion became more and more of a relevant topic over time, mm-hmm. like with me too. And then with black lives matter, like more people were like, Oh, I want to learn about this. And then when they kind of told us a bit about their interests, we would curate content for them. We found that most people were actually open to kind of passively engaging. And so we started getting, you know, it was, I think when we'd roll out, we had anywhere from like, depending on the company size, but like, you'd see like a 60 to 70% opt-in rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, from there, we would have like, uh, at, like it was a minimum of like 50% of them were like active on like a, at least a bi-weekly or like a monthly basis of watching content. And then, you know, a smaller amount would be more actively engaging and a smaller amount would start actually sharing and like uh, distributing content with each other. And so we basically were able to create like this pipeline of like creating more diversity and inclusion advocates in your organization. And that was our pitch to companies mm-hmm. is that like, you know, we can fill that gap between like your training and your like resource groups um, and do it in a way that people actually like. And we can provide data on like what people like, what they're, what, what they're commenting on um, and how we can plug that into the initiatives that you already are spending a lot of money on. So we can create this like pipeline basically in your company to help people get engaged with all diversity inclusion events and initiatives that you have going on. And for like diversity inclusion professionals who are, you know, data starved, like they're they're operating with like trainings and they send out like a survey. Um, like that's all like this was just like amazing to them, right? Because it gave them it bring legitimacy to their their role. Um, and it gave them data to talk about impact, uh, which they just didn't have before. And this was an opt-in thing. So it's not like everybody's yeah. forced to okay, okay, that's good. Yeah. Now okay, so I don't know if this is a that maybe it's a weird question, but like just out of curiosity, of those companies that kind of like signed up um, to use Crescendo and implement it in their workplace, how many, and again, touching on your ability to kind of sniff out BS, right? How many of them do you think did so out of the 
you know, kindness of their hearts and like care for their employees. And how many of those do you think did that for like a public image, like greenwashing kind of thing? Yeah. So I, I would say that there's a lot of companies out there who, so there's a spectrum of companies who like, you know, invest and then like don't invest. Um, and at the beginning, there's companies who just like literally don't care and they don't care to do anything about it. There's companies who like don't care, but they're like, let's do something public. But what they'll do is they'll do like ad campaigns, but they won't actually have anything internal, right? So they won't actually have anyone who is responsible for diversity inclusion inside the company. It's like someone's kind of side role. Mm-hmm. Then you have companies who are like, okay, let's actually kind of do something. Let's hire someone to figure this out for us. And then you've got companies who are like, okay, let's actually do something and we're invested in this. So we've hired someone who's focused on this. They've got a small team um, and we are like actively trying to figure out how we can improve the culture within our company. And so within that spectrum, like, you know, for us, we would actually work best with the companies who are at the latter stage of that spectrum. And we work really good with the companies who are at the far end uh, who were really invested because mm-hmm. like we weren't less like a, it wasn't like we tried at the beginning. We, we realized that there were companies who were buying and rolling us out but there was no product stickiness. Like there'd be minimal adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, there's nothing to plug into and it just becomes this like thing that's just sending you YouTube videos. And you're like, why do I have this? Versus mm-hmm. at a company like um, larger enterprise companies we're working with, like it was a part of their overall diversity inclusive strategy, right? So mm-hmm. there was this YouTube thing, there's this thing that was sending you YouTube videos, but there was also a bigger strategy that it actually plugged into. So it made sense. Um, and so that's how at least we separated out like, like, customers that weren't like, it was, it's like customer product fit, right? Like mm-hmm. who's the right customer for your product? Um, and we, that's how we determined who, who was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. I think it's a really good way of putting it. And I'm having been on a few companies now, like I can definitely tell the difference, like not to name names for bad ones, but I'll name a good one. Twitter, for example, like absolutely amazing. Like the, the teams there that are responsible for DNI, like have direct access to Jeff Dorsey, like, on like on a meeting to meeting basis you know what i mean and it's you can really tell it's like something that's ingrained within the company culture whereas like you know not not naming names but other companies that's definitely not the case um you know it's not as much of a priority so i think i think that matters a lot um cool so gonna be working at twitter full-time not that it's related (laughs) at all to the answer but (laughs) (laughs) anyways so um sort of the next bucket of questions we wanted to ask. And this is something I think we're all interested in. Damien's really, really interested in this. I'll let him take the reins. But I wanted to ask before that, before letting him take the reins, what is the most exciting trend coming out of East Asia or Asia? Oh, man, that's hard. Um, So there's, there's a lot of trends. I think it's like, what is the most exciting for me? Because that's probably yeah, like, yeah, okay. there's a lot of things that are exciting yeah. to a lot what of people. What do you think is the most exciting? Yeah. I, I think what's most exciting is like, and I think this is actually probably one of the more popular ones, it's it's around fintech um, and uh, banking the unbanked. So, um, and, and we can get into this, but like... Here comes the Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> a little oh, yeah. bit about it, a little bit about <laughs> it, but there's, there's a couple main areas, right? There's a, there's a couple big themes here. So the first theme is that um, in emerging countries, so this is like, um, India's countries within Southeast Asia, countries in Africa, countries in South America, all of these countries who were considered like, you know, developing countries, quote unquote, um, are seeing like really rapidly, really rapid rises in internet penetration. Mm. So for example, in India, uh, in 2010, 5% of the population had access to high-speed internet. Today, um, over 50% does. And so, you know, and, and, and that just keeps increasing because between 2018 and 2024, it was projected that 500 million new people would have access to the internet for the first time in India alone. Um, you start looking at like uh, like Southeast Asia, for example. 
just like this year in Southeast Asia, within the countries of Southeast Asia, so Thailand, Vietnam, et cetera, 40 million people got access to the internet for the first time. And so this That's is really insane. happening in like every, it, it's insane. In Canada. Yeah. Like 500 million people is bigger than the entire population of the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like having, like never having internet access and all of a sudden having high-speed internet access through a mobile phone, yeah. like through a smartphone. And so like that is absurd. But like what you're also seeing is that with internet access, specifically like mobile high-speed internet access comes like a wide range of things. And, um, you know, there's there's education, there's like learning, there's like social commerce, you know, like social media, like all of these things have their own threads. Um, but I think the most impactful one is actually finance because so many of these people who had never had access to the internet before also didn't have access to bank accounts, right? Like. These are, these are like people in India who are storing uh, cash in their mattresses, which is like a totally normal thing because there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. And so like, I was like, let's have a couple of countries. So in Vietnam, there's a 70%, so 70% internet penetration rate. 69% of the population is unbanked. So they don't have bank accounts. In Philippines, 43% internet penetration, 75% unbanked. In Cambodia, 40% internet penetration, 95% unbanked. So all of a sudden, you've got these people who don't have bank accounts who get access to a mobile phone, like a smartphone with internet access. And so they actually completely skip the traditional banking process mm -hmm. because their first exposure to banking is fintech. It's financial technology, right? So it is, um, yeah, it, it's like it's all of these like different companies out there. So whether that's like Geo or whether that's like, um, you know, Grab in Southeast Asia or like uh, Baikia in, in, in Pakistan, like all of these companies that um, have gotten into the fintech world. Um, and so that's like a really interesting aspect. Within there, there's another subsect that I, like, I find really interesting, which is really around, um, it, it's around crypto, it's around stable coins, it's around like alternative forms of like digital currency. Um, because if you think about it and you add the layer on of like a real economics, right? So like Argentina, for example, had like massive de like currency devaluation. Same with Nigeria, massive currency inflation. And so in these, in these regions, like there are people who had cash and from January to March, saw the value of the cash that they were holding, their literal, their life savings dropped by like 40%. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like there's also, there's also the added layer of like, it's just, it's like a kind of ripe area for um, a new form of like financial transactions to happen. And that's exactly what happened in Argentina was the Argentinian dollar started dropping rapidly. And so Argentinians were like, holy shit, I need to get my money into USD because it's stable and my Argentinian pesos are becoming worthless. Mm -hmm. And so the government saw that and like, there's an economic effect where it's basically like, if you're, if you're selling too much of your currency for a different currency, your currency drops even further. And so the government stepped in and said, hey, we're gonna put a restriction where you're only allowed to exchange $100 worth of US, like of, of, of dollars a month USD. And so obviously black markets started popping up of people you know, finding other ways to exchange their money, um, but they're kind of sketchy and you get ripped off a lot. And so all of a sudden, you had people who you know discovered stablecoins. So they found um, like MakerDAO or um, or USDC or like US like or Tether, like all these things that were an alternative form of currency that they could purchase through their new mobile phones um, that had the same level of stability as a US dollar, safer, easier to use. Um, and that's I think that's what I'm excited about because that's like real kind of innovation happening in all these areas. Yeah. That's actually incredible. And I mean, like the, I, I would imagine the other part of this as well, like you kind of touched on this briefly, but like the education piece, right? Um, I remember like, oh, I don't know, like a long while ago at this point, uh, they somebody did an experiment where they like dropped a tablet in some African village 
and you know they let the kids play with it for like a month or something they come back after a month kids have broken into it started modding the shit out of the tablet like just learn all this stuff from the ground up right and for a lot of these people you know education really tends to be the usually like the barrier to entry for a lot of things like the that's usually like the great divide and for us over here you know most of us take it for granted you know like how many people you know went through undergrad and just took as many bird courses as they could just to get the grade just to finish right there there's so much wasted opportunity there and for people who have that intention it makes literally all the difference in the world because like now you know now, then you get to educate yourself on like these fintech markets you get to learn about what the hell is crypto like what the hell is a stable coin um and then that's where you can start to regain some semblance of control over your life as well right because like to those uninitiated crypto can sound like a huge scam too like what the hell is this right yeah exactly and i think this is the thing that's really interesting um and and i think it like touches on an area that like i'm personally really passionate about um and it's the intersection between like uh, internet education and like the future of work for all of these emerging countries right because and like you're exactly right like now you've got like hundreds of millions of people who are like our age younger who are now growing up internet native in areas that have been completely ignored mm-hmm. and so they don't have access to high quality education and so they're actually learning most of what they're what they know online um they're going to be able to find work opportunities online through remote work um and they're gonna be able to earn currency online and it's interesting because they're doing all of this while like skipping the regular infrastructure that comes with those things normally right like yes. normally you need um uh, like proper financial systems, you need proper, um, you know, education, proper like pipelines from education to work for all of these things to happen. And that's what you see in the United States or any Western countries. Mm-hmm. But when you remove all of those, like what I'm really interested in is what does that look like? Someone who doesn't actually go to traditional school, they're completely internet native, that's where they learn, that's where they earn, um, and they earn in, you know, a, a digital currency because they don't actually have access to a bank or a traditional bank account. Um, and they're doing all of this through their phone or through their kind of like internet connected devices. Like, what does that start to look like um, when we think about the fact that there are, like, hundreds of millions of people like that um, all across the world in, like, a similar circumstance? Um, and it, it's interesting to me because it's, like, you know, you never really had an, uh, you, you never really had this happen at, at this scale before. Um, and so that's what I'm really looking at in the next, like, five to ten years of, like, mm-hmm. what is that going to look like and, like, what opportunities exist in that area? Yeah, and, like, it's super interesting that you mentioned that, too, because it's such a weird thing how, like, in these developing regions, they skip the, I don't know, how do I say this? It's like they skip steps in innovation, right? Like, you, like, in Africa, you know, nobody got landlines. They went straight to cell phones, right? And, like, it's so interesting from a prediction POV where you can kind of just throw your dart and see where it lands because it's, like, at least here, you can make some form of prediction considering like the this like linear trend of entrepreneurship and innovation, right? But over there, it's like a grab bag of like whatever the hell happens, happens. Um, and, you know, considering how we were kind of touching on this before as well, but the potential for these markets to completely change how like global economies look like, because look at the size of the populations in these countries, right? Like, for example, in Africa, we can be like the rest of the world could be consumed with trying to go transition to this green revolution. You know, we, we transition to renewables. We have the, the Paris climate accord and everything, but if we don't get it right in Africa, we can just completely screw up everything we've done like all uh, leading up to now. Right. And it, 
how much of what you're looking at now is a outcome of that skipping? Oh, all of it. Um, and, and like, that's, that's what's interesting, right? It's um, like, when you look at, so the, the, like the, the base level is that um, regular rollout of internet adoption was skipped. So people didn't go from like computers to like cell phones. They went from nothing to like, you know, 4G, 5G internet connections. And they didn't go from nothing to laptops. They went from nothing to smartphones. And so that's like the, the primary one. And, and traditionally where this happens everywhere else is you have everything else when the internet comes after, right? Like you have proper infrastructure, proper education, like government control, and then the internet comes in. So it's used in a very different way. And so like, this is where you see all these trends, especially in education, right? Where like, someone who's never been a part of like a formal schooling system is now has, has access to the world's information um, or, uh, you know, people who have never had access to traditional infrastructure um, are using drones to deliver goods. And like that's where it's interesting is because like a lot of these innovations are driven out of necessity. Um, you don't have something, so you need to make it possible. And you can only see them in areas where that necessity is real um, versus areas where that necessity is not real and it's actually wrapped in regulation, right? Like drone delivery in the United States, the drone delivery in Canada is a very, very complex process to crack because of how much regulation there is around it and like how many other better ways of delivering goods there are um, in the meantime. Whereas you think about that um, in Africa, in India, and in Southeast Asia, regulation isn't there. So many people are living without proper infrastructure. And so being able to deliver goods to them becomes doubly important, especially when it comes to like medical goods. And so, you know, you apply that to every single industry. So even in energy, um, and this is probably one of the next things I'm going to dive into, like in terms of research, um, but just seeing like what innovative energy projects are out there because um, like India, Southeast Asia, like, all these emerging countries are notorious for not having consistent energy, mm -hmm. right? Like even when I was in India, like there were periods where, like, even a major city like um, like Pune, for example, like where part of my family is from, like, years ago now it's probably better, was that, like, for a solid period in the afternoon, like, no one had energy, right? So you would heat up your water, you do everything you need to do, charge your battery before then, and you just go without energy. And that was a major city. That was, like, a tier two city. Probably better now, but, like, there's so many cities like that throughout India that just don't have consistent energy. And so, like, what do alternative energy, pro energy projects look like, in those, look like in those areas? And, like... For me, in every one of these industries, like that's where I see the most interesting ideas or most interesting kind of innovation come from. Technological innovation, like ideological innovation, is from these areas that like need to just invent shit. Um, because realistically, you don't need to invent stuff in the United States anymore. Like you don't need to invent stuff in, in China anymore. Like out of necessity, at least, right? Like, and that's yeah. where you're seeing all of it come out. So, um, yeah, that that's kind of my take on like why all of this is happening and like where it's coming from. I don't know. Um, I still gotta get up to get food, so I feel like innovation still is the way to go. <laughs> uh, and I think the term you guys are looking for is like the leapfrogging of technology. Uh, that's how I've seen it described a lot. Um, and yeah, it's insane. And one thing I want to I want to say too before we move on to our last question is the how Amerocentric people tend to think. Like at, even in Canada, right? It's like okay, pilot your idea in Canada and then go to the U.S. market. Like get this to the U.S. The U.S. is where the money is, where the consumers are. And like you said, like 500 million people. That's more. The U.S. is like 380 million. Like tech is not Amerocentric anymore. And it's increasingly becoming less Amerocentric. And I think that's so interesting and so empowering for the rest of the world. And I'm really excited to see where that goes. So like, yeah, kudos to you for doing the, the hard work and like, you know, really uncovering those trends in the emerging market. Yeah, I think like, uh, it, I think people are starting, at least in the venture community, people are starting to take note. It's like very much like, 
there, I think there, there's still like a, a core group of people who are interested in emerging markets and I'm like starting to meet all of them. Um, and it is small, but when you start looking at like some of the major players like, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, like Sequoia, um, all of them set up shop in India, in like Latin America, even like SoftBank, um, you know, mm -hmm. SoftBank had set up a shop in Latin America with, Latin, with their Latin American fund, um, I think three or four years ago. Um, and so all these, all of these like kind of larger investors like saw these trends happening and now people are just starting to realize it. And, um, and it's becoming more and more visible too, right? So I don't think it's gonna stay this way forever. Like you start looking at some, uh, like just India on its own, it's just been like printing unicorns. Um, like mm -hmm. so many companies have just broken that unicorn status. You've got companies in you know Egypt that are raising like massive seed rounds that they had never done before, right? You're talking like 20 million plus in a seed round, which is like unheard of in Egypt. Um, you see the same thing with like all these super apps now forming, you know, and going public via like a SPAC um, and being public on the U.S. market and that are based in, like, Singapore. And so little by little, like, as these companies start to grow, and I think people realize that, like, like companies don't have to come from Silicon Valley anymore. They can come from anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, will more and more attention be there? But I think, honestly, like, it's, it's starting to come past the tipping point where uh, a lot of people are starting to realize, like, this is where the next things are happening. Like, it was China, and now it's in all of these emerging countries. Um, or that may just be because I'm surrounded by people who say that. Like, <laughs> I don't you know, one, one of the two. <laughs> I, I do not hear it talked about as much as you do. So, <laughs> um, cool. Anyway, so just one last question. Do you no, predict the shifting of powers there then? Uh, in what way? In in so far as like you know, you kind of have the giants uh, that is like the U.S. and China. And, you know, like we're mentioning, like India's printing unicorns, um, SoftBank's investing in Grab, for example. And uh, these emerging markets have so much potential for the, the explosive growth and just to become a dominating force across the world. Do you think that maybe, let's say, 10, 15 years from now, will it only be China and the U.S. still? Like they're able to leverage the existing infrastructure they have and can continue to stay dominant? Mm. This is a good question. Um, and like US is like, it's, it's on the decline. Um, I'm just gonna look for, there's one thing that I think will be a stat that will be very interesting here. It is. So um, this is something that I thought was like fascinating, just looking at like the top 10 um, GDPs in the world right now, and then what their projects to be in 2050. Um, and this is from like a PwC study. So this is like a you know mainstream consulting firm being like, look, Right now, in 2016, in terms of largest in terms of largest GDPs in the world, uh, number one was China, number two was the U.S., number three was India, and then you had like Japan, Germany, Russia, Brazil, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, by 2050, the out of the top seven, uh, six of them will be emerging markets. So China, India, uh, then the U.S., and then Indonesia, Brazil, Russia, and Mexico. What? Um, as the largest GDP, yeah, as, as, as the largest GDP in the world, and so. Like it's replacing, you know, the UK, uh, uh, Germany, France, like all of these countries that are that are up there, and the US goes from the second to the third place. Um, and so this is really like it's it's a trend that you're seeing all like everywhere because right now, like right now, like when you think about it, and and this is like my thesis at least, it goes back to like internet access, right? Like when you have access to the internet, you now become a global consumer and like a global earner. And because of that, like right now, you're like you know average the average amount of money that you can spend as an individual is probably very low but over time honestly i think that that average will start to rise in emerging markets and just because of the sheer volume of people 
um, that has a massive impact on like economies across the world, right? Like right now in India, like there are companies who have just focused on the Indian market and have become unicorns. Those companies over the past five years are now like on their way or are like decacorns, like worth $10 billion. And that just keeps growing and they only serve the Indian market. Mm -hmm. um, and so that in itself is just kind of indicative of like the buying power of an individual within emerging countries is like starting to rise because of like internet access for education, jobs, whatever it might be. And that's happening in emerging countries all across the world. And so and emerging countries across the world tend to have larger populations than the United States. So mm -hmm. the United States has like what, 350 million people? Indonesia has a population of almost 200 million people. 271 million, actually. Insane. Like, I was going to say, yeah. Damien, Indonesia is not coming in nowhere. They have more people than Pakistan and Brazil. Pakistan has 250 people, or 250 million people, and Brazil is 211. Like, 270 million. Insane. I just Googled it. Yeah. Like, when do you ever see Indonesia in the news, though? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's the thing, right? You just got to find the right news, because there's, like, a ton of companies that are coming out, out of Indonesia that are, like, past the A level. They're, like, Series A, Series B, like... Um, you know, on their way, they're past unicorns. Like, it's all out there. Like, it's all kind of happening. Yeah, it's nuts. Like, there's even, like, in, not this one wasn't in, in, in Indonesia, but um, in, in India, there was a company called um, SimSim. So they're, like, a social commerce company. Um, basically, just kind of, like, social commerce started in China and spread all through Southeast Asia. And then in India, uh, and then just last week, they got acquired by YouTube. Um, because, like, YouTube and Google have been making really aggressive moves into India. Um, but, like, Google's also been making really aggressive moves into, like, all of Southeast Asia. And so it's like, yeah, there's a lot of shit going on in Southeast Asia. The difference in Southeast Asia is that like um, a lot of the companies that pop up won't just serve like one country, they'll serve a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. So like Grab, for example, is based in Singapore, um, but serves like Thailand, serves Indonesia, serves like a whole, like the Philippines, a whole bunch of other areas. And then you've also got like uh, Gojek, which is now like GoTo because they merged with Tokopedia. Um, that was ultimately, that was based in, uh, originally based in Indonesia. Um, and they serve the Indonesian market a lot more. And so... Um, yeah, there's a lot of shit popping off in in Indonesia. You just gotta you just gotta find the good good news sources. Yeah, you know, maybe I'll hit you up after and find those sources because I am very interested in that. And you know, just even I'm not a huge betting man myself, but you know, I I want to keep an eye out on these countries. You know, if all of this cool shit is happening, just out of curiosity more than anything, I just want to see what are the depths of innovation that come from these previously like almost marginalized in an innovation for uh, fashion uh, countries. So yeah. it'll be very interesting to watch that. But yeah. I guess the last question, if you were to place your bet on one country, um, one emer emerging market, which do you think will see the most amount of growth in the next 10 years? Oh, that's it. So most amount of growth are like be the largest kind of dark horse. I, I like that. Well, let's go largest dark horse. Oh, I was going to say yeah. growth, but no, do both. Do oh, let's both. do both. Let's do both. Screw you got to do both. Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So I would say that, like, dark horse for me is, like, is India. Um, I think, like, when we think about, like, the three world powers um, in 2050, it's going to be, like, China, it's going to be America, and it's going to be India. And I think why that's interesting is because, um, you know, a part of being a world power is, like, who else in the world kind of sides with you in terms of ideology, in terms of trade. And I think that's where you have, like, the China side of the world, which is now a lot of the world, um, and you have the U.S. side of the world, um, which is a lot of the kind of Western countries, European kind of G7, quote unquote, um, like that kind of. And I think everyone in the middle who like doesn't want to be a part of that is going to be like in this camp with like India, um, where they're like going to try to figure out what to do. Um, and so that's where I think is really interesting. I also think that like the, the the other reason why India is a dark horse, and it'll really depend on the next couple of years, like 
what the government decides to do with crypto, if they decide to embrace it or they decide to like keep kind of pushing against it, mm -hmm. um, is that like the like the Chinese dollar, um, so the yuan and the American dollar are like them in themselves like economic powers, mm -hmm. um, and little by little with, with China kind of adopting the, their, their their own digital currency for the digital yuan um, and really pushing that through a lot of their kind of partners, um, you're going to be part of the world that really um, you know trades and lives in Chinese or Chinese-backed or base currencies. And then you have another part of the world that lives um, in US or US-backed or base currencies. And then you're gonna have everyone else who's in the middle. And like, my bet is that like, that's where kind of like crypto or like alternate digital currencies will thrive is in that middle region. Um, but there's a lot that needs to happen in terms of just like governments getting on board with it. Mm -hmm. um, but then, then there to be an actual spectrum, right? Of like China, the US and India slash like crypto. Um, and so that for me is like the dark horse in terms of like growth. That's a really good one. Um, oh man, I think that I would put, probably put like Indonesia is like too close up to the top to like have mm -hmm. exponential growth. I think if we're like looking, so there's actually classification for this. So there's like there's frontier markets, there's emerging markets, and then there's like developed markets. And emerging, like frontier markets are not emerging markets because there's too much like government instability um, that prevents them from becoming an emerging market. Mm -hmm. An emerging market is like they're on the way up, like they're starting to get everything. Like imagine like the, the countries are getting their shit together, they're getting a more stable government, people are getting education, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then developing is like developing. And so that's why the frontier market side, it's like tough. Um, I think Nigeria is really interesting. I think Iran is really interesting. I also think Morocco is really interesting, but I need to learn more about Morocco, to be honest. Um, Iran really interesting because um, they have a very young population. Um, their population is very highly educated. Um, they have a lot of opportunity for trade to the surrounding regions. They have been economically stifled for the past like tons of years because of US sanctions. And so, like, that's really kind of been impeding the growth, but everything else is there for them to become, you know, an emerging class developing country. So that's one. Um, Nigeria, I think, is also really interesting, specifically mm -hmm. because, um, like, there's just, like, so much going on in Nigeria around, like, financial innovation, around crypto. Um, again, very young population, like, young under 30 population, um, very, like, like, educated as well. Um, but they have a lot of government instability. They also have a lot of like economic and currency instability. And so they are like one of the countries that like is also huge because they've got like what like 200 million population again. Um, but they they're always on the cusp of like becoming a frontier and emerging market just because of the government instability that they have in the region. And so um those are the, the two. Morocco is like also really interesting. Um they again, it's like the same kind of vibe. So I actually have an article on this where it's like here are the top six that I'm paying attention to. Um I look at like how many of their populations under 30, um, like how many of them are educated, like what is the internet penetration? Um, Morocco hits on a lot of those. It's also in a good it's also in a good geographical position, being in the north of Africa, having access to Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and they have been like the government of Morocco has been investing a lot um, into like the people uh, in terms of education and just like quality of life. And so that one's another really interesting one. Um, to be fair, though, like I know a lot more about like India, Southeast Asia, Indonesia. Right. Uh, so I can't speak to those ones in depth. But if I were to like start looking at countries, like those are the ones that I would look at, um, and Saudi Arabia, just because like they're spending a lot of money diversifying away from oil. Mm -hmm. um, and if they can, 
then they also have the potential to continue kind of growing and being a very interesting place to look at. Yeah, I think I'm bullish in Nigeria. I heard a lot of really cool innovation coming out of Lagos, especially. Um, yeah. So that's definitely somewhere I will be watching closely. Absolutely. But Mr. Tuba, I'm so sorry for keeping you like half an hour over time. Like the conversation was just too ripe to just let it pass. So, but I think it's finally time to let this man go and ask him our last question. It is, it is, it is time. And I just want to say thank you again. I'm so tired right now, so I don't know how it feels for you guys on the East Coast. Because you guys, I feel like anyone listening to this is like, oh, the quality just degraded after the first hour. No, the quality definitely got better on your side. The quality of questions, I'm sorry, like I. No, we're gonna like listen to this after. We're gonna be like barely coherent, slurring words. We're just like, yeah, Indonesia road. <laughs> uh, anyways, yeah. First off, just want to say thank you again for going over time. We really appreciate it. I know it's super late on the East Coast, but you know you stuck around. That's what counts. Last question, and hopefully your brain's still kicking for this one. Uh, we like to ask this of all our guests, uh, and the traditional final question on our podcast is: If you could put any one message on a billboard that would reach millions, even billions of people, and you can stratify this message however you want, you can make it for. You know, people in Indonesia, uh, people in emerging markets, like whatever you want. Uh, what message do you put on this billboard and why? Man, this is a very hard question. His brain started kicking as soon as he heard billboard. I know. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> um, oh, I don't, fuck, I don't know if this would be too. Take your time. It could be to it. everyone, too. Like, just general. Like, literally everyone on sees this. Like, whatever you want. And it can be like an electronic billboard with like a scrolling text. <laughs> it can be as creative as you want. We it's a big budget billboard. <laughs> oh man, okay, this is this got really cool. My answer I think is gonna be really lame, um, but I think it's gonna be something along the lines of like stop waiting. Um, specifically because like there's so much that's changing right now, um, and because of how much is changing right now, like there are a ton of opportunities that are being created. Um, and I think the quicker you start looking at these opportunities, figuring out how you can contribute to them, like how you can at least be a part of them, um, I think the better off that you're going to be five years from now. Um, and, and I say this in a couple of ways. One, because I think the earlier you start trying to do something or trying to make or trying to build something, the more you learn. And even if that fails, like the more successful your second road, your go around is going to be. Um, and also just because like, like the tailwinds of like, you know, the early, early sign of change has kind of passed and now it's like actually building momentum. Um, and so if you're thinking that like, you know, all of these things happening in emerging markets are like super early, like you're, you're, you're very wrong. Like there are, they're, they're developed. A lot of people who are pouring money are pouring money into that region. And so the longer you wait, the more developed it's going to become um, and the less opportunity you have to kind of get in at an early stage, whether that's from like an investment perspective or whether that's from like an idea or like entrepreneurship perspective. And so um, that's what I would look out to. Like also, I think anyone like looking at school, like start looking internationally, like start looking at these other opportunities. Um, because if you can grab experience at like, you know, one of these uh, super apps, fast growth startups coming out of like East Asia or like Southeast Asia or even India, um, you're going to have such a unique set of knowledge um, that I think everyone will be clamoring for uh, in a couple of years. And so really kind of put that into your playbook when you're looking at like, what am I supposed to do with my career? What am I going to do with my, you know, professional life? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, don't wait sounds eerily similar to just do it, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. Copyright, copyright. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but thank you so much for that, Daniel. It is 
for those listening, it is 10.30 p.m. EST right now. So like this is ridiculously late for a podcast. I don't know what the hell we're doing on here. So we appreciate you joining us at this just honestly terribly late hour. Um, any last thoughts from you, Mr. Tuba D'Souza? Anything you want to shout out or promote or where can people um, reach you? Yeah, yeah, a couple things. One, if you're interested in the emerging market side, uh, go check out uh, the blog. So it's called Macrolab, so M-A-C-R-O-L-A-B dot Asia. Um, so you'll see all the posts on there. Um, if you're interested, subscribe. I send out a, like a deep dive usually once a month. I've been getting really busy, so it's been like tough to do it. Um, but the next one will actually be on uh, the rise of retail investing outside of North America. So I've been able to interview founders of uh, fintech companies in Nigeria, um, in uh, Brazil, uh, doing a big one in India uh, and Indonesia. So it'll be a fire article. Um, and then <laughs> if you want to reach out to me, um, I'm happy to talk about all things uh, like startup entrepreneurship, um, you know, emerging markets, like whatever, whatever it may be. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at Tuba D'Souza um, or just DM me, DM me on LinkedIn. Um, good chance I'll respond. That's what Damien did. It worked. Um, so, yeah, I always happy to chat, always happy to reach out. Um, and thank you all for listening. Beautiful. Amazing. And uh, yeah, if that mimosa thing ever pops off and you need, yeah. spon- and uh, we're looking for sponsors always. So, if you're looking yeah, to sponsor yeah, yeah. someone, let us know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we will fuck the shit out of those because I would I will I'll let you know yeah I will I'll give you unhealthy we, yeah we're gonna be on an episode <laughs> just throwing those back so oh yeah <laughs> sounds good all right uh any last thoughts Fwad? no just want to say thank you and dude I'm amped to read this next article you sold the shit out of that so <laughs> now I gotta put it together man that was <laughs> If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration.